Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. I'm here where we're back from uh, a bit of a, a longer break, and uh, Rania Kellogg, my co-host, is here. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And uh, I've been uh, out. Uh, I'm back in Chicago now, but I had I, I joined the, the gaggle of media that was that descended upon Ferguson. Missouri, and I think there's still a handful of people there as we're recording this show on August 28th. It's a Thursday. And so we wanted to stay on this uh, topic, this this whole general topic, which is still very fresh in the minds of people. And our guest this week is Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who is a professor at Princeton University and also works at the Center for African American Studies. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So uh, to, to begin, uh, we were just going to start off broadly and, and, and ask you the question of why Ferguson, Missouri, why uh, the St. Louis area? Why do you think that uh, after the shooting of Mike Brown, the unarmed black teenager who was uh, gunned down by the white police officer, Darren Wilson. Why did all of this protest uh, begin? Because there are police shootings on almost uh, almost a nearly daily basis. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think that there are probably a couple of reasons that have to do specifically with um, the, the actual, what actually took place with Mike Brown. And then I think, um, that there are external, uh, reasons that may have contributed to that, uh, as well. In terms of why Ferguson, uh, in particular, I mean, in some sense, that's a difficult, uh, question to answer, um, because of what you say when, you know, you say that these things happen, uh, in cities across the United States every day. But I do think that, um, in my opinion, there, there are probably a few contributing uh, factors. I think uh, one is that um, this happened in broad daylight. It happened um, in, front of, uh, in front of people. Um, and I think that there was also something to uh, the brutality um, of the way in which uh, Mike Brown was executed. And so, you know, the, the, the police have come out with their version of events, but, um, you know, there's several sort of unrelated corroborating uh, stories from people who were on the street that day um, who saw Mike Brown uh, plead for his life with his hands in the air um, and was summarily uh, executed in a hail of gunfire uh, by this one officer. And so I think that the execution style aspect of this uh, contributed to um, perhaps a feeling that people in Ferguson had nothing to lose by, um, uh, you know, uh, demonstrating uh, against this kind of savagery. I also think that, you know, some of the the information that has come out about uh, what black life is like in Ferguson in the aftermath um, may have also contributed to this. I mean, there have been multiple stories about how uh, the second leading source of revenue in the city of Ferguson uh, is derived from 
uh, warrants and citations. Um, and in a black majority city, it means that there is an inbuilt antagonism uh, between the police and uh, the residents of Ferguson, where, you know, in a certain sense, you could say that uh, for the police, their their income is contingent uh, on um, citations and uh, a close monitoring of the black community uh, as a way to generate generate revenue for um, the town. And so you can see how this would, um, you know, sort of exacerbate the already existing tensions that, um, you know, are there between uh, police and communities, uh, police and communities of color. And so I think that a combination of those, a feeling of hypervigilance from the police and the black community um, combined with the utter and sheer brutality of the execution of of Mike Brown in broad daylight in front of people, which in some ways can signal to the community that anyone's life is at stake or anyone's life is at risk uh, if the police are so brazen in the taking, you know, of a teenager's life that um, you, you're really put in a position where you have to uh, respond and react. And then I think that there are things that the police did in the aftermath uh, that essentially fueled the fire, whether um, it was uh, the, the sort of display of military art- artillery um, in response to the first wave of protests. There are news reports that have come out that uh, the canine units of the uh, uh, police who were on the scene uh, urinated on the shrine and the the, um, the uh, memorial that was set up for Mike Brown um, in the street, and then just the the kind of um, uh, just uncivil behavior directed <laughs> at the the you know African Americans in in Ferguson. Um, and so, you know, those things clearly contributed to uh, the the kind of uh, escalation of events in the immediate aftermath. The only thing I would say about external uh, events is that I think that, you know, over the course of, of August, um, there have been a number of uh, police shootings of unarmed black men that got national um, attention. There's a way in which now social media has a way of uh, basically, um, you know, giving people an immediate, uh, a kind of immediate uh, way to generalize and talk about um, these cases. And, you know, some of these cases, particularly Eric Garner, had gotten um, national uh, press attention. And I think that, you know, that this is part of the external pressure um, that, you know, there's a feeling of, of enough is enough that, you know, the normal sort of channels by which people are supposed to be able to respond uh, to abuses by public servants are not really available to us. Um, so we need to do something else. And I think a combination of those factors uh, probably contributed to things ultimately boiling over um, in Ferguson. Just one one last thing I, I forgot to mention that I think is also important. There have also been um, a number of reports about the absolute kind of 
racist hysteria that seems to have been running rife through the Ferguson um, Police Department. So you've got the um, one of the, the the cops was caught on was seen on video uh, calling himself an equal opportunity killer. Um, making all sorts of disparaging comments about gays and Muslims uh, and black people. Um, this uh, cop, Darren Wilson, had come from a police force in a neighboring town that had been disbanded because of racist uh, behavior. Um, so all of these stories start to trickle out, and you get a picture of what life must be like um, for working-class black people in Ferguson who are sort of hemmed in by— what seems to be a racist police force that uh, whose whose you know livelihood and payments are contingent on their ability to stop and issue as many citations as possible to the population. I think the 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 culmination of all these events um, led to this explosion. That's a very very comprehensive awesome explanation of all that. Um, And on that note, I'm kind of curious about your take about this idea that there's been all, I mean, immediately after Mike Brown was executed and like protests started happening, there was, there was this demand by, um, by well-known voices for like nonviolence. And I feel like this, this is kind of a constant, this always happens, this idea that like, you know, and, and, and it's not to say that I'm like saying people should be violent. I'm not like, you know, I'm not encouraging that. But there does seem to always be this expectation and demand of marginalized communities to like be as restrained as possible in the face of overwhelming violence being, you know, being inflicted mm-hmm. on them. And I don't know, I find it like kind of, con- I find it really condescending and patronizing mm-hmm. uh, to see that sort of, those sort of demands. Um, and also I think it's very ahistorical to act like, you know, nonviolence, this sort of like turn the other cheek and like, you know, quietly, you know, protest quietly and dignity. This, this idea that like, this is, this is what brought about change in this country in the past and will continue to do so isn't even true. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Well, a couple of things. One is that the, the whole focus on people in Ferguson, either looting or quote unquote being violent um, was really uh, misattributing where the violence was coming from um, and was really accepting a police narrative of that that was put forth as a way to uh, explain and justify their behavior um, in Ferguson. Because I think that when you see the reports from people who were on the ground there, uh, it's clear. And even beyond people on the ground, you you had you know reports from CNN reporters and other mainstream reporters uh, who you know said that it's actually the police who are perpetuating violence in this, this, uh, uh, situation that, you know, from the very first day when there was an attempt to have a vigil, a march, you know, and all the sort of common, uh, ways that people protest things, uh, violently suppressed and attacked by, um, the, 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 the police with, you know, a display of, uh, their military hardware. Um, it was clear to most people who were on the ground there, who was perpetuating um, the violence. But I do think in some of the cases, because this was 
seemed to be uh, the situation early on, at least, that um, at night uh, you would have uh, people who I would say were acting more in a mode of self-defense than um, instigating uh, violence against the police, uh, but who in general, I would say, were more willing uh, to challenge the sort of unchecked authority of the police and who were willing to uh, fight back and who were willing to defend their right uh, to protest, to be on the streets at all, you know, uh, at any time of the, uh, at any time of the, the, the night. And so I think that that's one important aspect is to actually be clear about who was responsible for the violence in the first place. And the second thing um, that I would say is that it wasn't only the police who were uh, perpetrating this narrative as a way to justify their actions, uh, but civil rights leaders, um, most you know, notably Al Sharpton, uh, were very quick to chastise um, people for engaging in acts of violence. And one, I would say, as I said before, that you know that was a kind of willful acceptance of the police version um, of events. Um, but I think that that it was also connected uh, to their ability to come in and try to control uh, the pace um, of events, especially someone like Sharpton, uh, who has um, sort of positioned himself and in, in fact is a, a, a spokesperson liaison or whatever you want to, however you want to describe it for the Obama administration, uh, it undermines his credibility as a White House operative uh, to be in, in demonstrations um, that are not completely controlled from the top down. And so uh, young men and women who are willing to fight back against the police, who are willing to lob tear gas canisters back at the police, um, disrupts this kind of picture of Al Sharpton as the kind of uh, you know, person who can arrive on the scene immediately, assess the situation, take control of the situation, and direct events in a way that he, the White House, other uh, establishment uh, leaders within the black political class would like for things um, to go. So it's also about trying to, I think, control the politics um, of the situation uh, as well. Yeah, kind of like contain them almost. And I think that's, a, mm-hmm. that's something you mentioned in this piece that you wrote, which we'll link to. Uh, sure. You wrote this piece for the socialist worker, What Divides Black America? And you mentioned near the end that class is something that's kind of been missing um, from the way, you know, from the, the framing of the situation in Ferguson. And you talk about some of these civil rights leaders like Sharpton. And so I guess, can you can you speak a little bit about that, about the class aspect of this that we're not sure. talking about? Sure, because I, I think that most of the way that uh, these divisions about how to move the struggle forward in Ferguson, um, most of them have, the, the, the division has been described um, as a generational divide, uh, as if to say, you know, older people or people of a certain age advocate quote unquote nonviolence while other people of a different age, a younger age, advocate, quote unquote, um, violence. And I think that um, that's that's a mischaracterization of the divisions um, that exist. And, and what I've argued is that what we really have to understand in terms of the sort of different approaches 
to to how to win justice in Ferguson, or even the different ideas about what actually constitute uh, justice reflect more of a, a class division uh, among African Americans than one simply of age. And what I mean by that is the way that divide plays out is really, I think, between those who um, believe that the United States is capable of producing a fair and equitable life for black people versus those whose cynicism uh, about racism and inequality in the United States deepens over time because of their own lived situation. Um, And so that division uh, is about class and class position um, in, in black communities. Because even though I think, you know, there's been people have tried to talk about the overlap between protest in Ferguson today and civil rights um, uh, activism in the 1960s, mostly looking at that through the perspective of how the police have responded. The, the central difference between then and now is not only is there a black president and a black attorney general, but there are more black elected officials than at any point in time in this nation's history. And yet when you look at the lives of ordinary black men and women, um, very little, if nothing, has substantively changed uh, for them. And so that raises inevitably the question of how do we get justice and how do we change things? And so for the black political class and the economic elite, there is a myopic focus on elections, on you know electoral kinds of voter registration, get this or that person um, into office. And you have to believe that for African-Americans who came out in record numbers on two occasions, in 2008 and 2012, to elect Barack, Barack Obama, and the net result of that has been a foreclosure crisis, has been a crisis in evictions, has been a crisis of police brutality, has been unemployment, has been underemployment, have been all of these attacks on, you know, people's basic abilities to maintain a standard of living, that there is a deep cynicism about whether or not the electoral system is capable of delivering the changes that can, can you know, substantively impact um, black people's lives. And if that's not the alternative, then it inevitably raises questions about, well, how do we get these things that can, can actually improve our lives and the lives um, of our children. And that is where that clash comes from. And so that is deeply rooted in class and class position. And that's something that is, is, is not being talked about is sort of papered over by just simply talking about it, uh, as, as, a as, you know, as sort of youth rebellion versus, uh, an established civil rights leadership. I think that there is, you know, to some extent that, for, for young people in particular, for people who have come of age in the age, you know, for black youth who have come of age under Obama, um, I think that there is something about that level of disillusionment. But there are a lot of older working class black people, too, who have not, you know, people who uh, whose, you know, pensions have been cut, who, you know, are, are being uh, uh, laid off out of public sector jobs, black teachers, these people must be raising the question as well uh, about what has the black, you know, 
presidency meant for us and how do we get real change in our lives? Um, so I wanted to ask you about, um, the, from what I, you know, I just kind of watching the aftermath of, of, um, of Michael Brown's execution in Ferguson. And I mean, we were all sort of glued to the TV by mm-hmm. the stormtroopers that, mm-hmm. uh, that rampaged through the streets. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the kind of symbiosis between U.S. foreign policy U.S. imperialism, and then the kind of domestic policy we see towards marginalized communities here, and how those two sort of feed off of each other. And I think that we kind of saw saw that in the way that, you know, Ferguson was turned into this kind of occupied territory for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there there are certainly some figurative and then some very literal, literal uh, uh, comparisons Um to make in that situation. I mean, the, the most obvious is uh, what has come to light in terms of the militarization um, of local police forces. And I think this is, this is a pretty important point because, you know, this is something that um, activists and, and people who keep up with these sorts of things have talked about um, for years now. But I do think that the display of hardware um, that was immediately uh, unleashed um, in the first uh, week or so of the Ferguson protest, you know, was really uh, a learning moment for the nation as a whole uh, to see, you know, what um, what local police forces have been up to. And this is directly related to uh U.S. foreign policy. I mean, the Pentagon, uh, it's come to light, has a program of giving its uh, sort of extra equipment uh, to local police forces. This is all part of the kind of uh, militarization of American society in the post-9-11 world, uh, where we are all supposed to constantly be vigilant and on watch for uh, threats of terrorism. And that has translated into not only a sort of uh, uh, accumulation of hardware um, for local police forces, um, but really a kind of soldier soldierized, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, viewpoint um, of officers as well, who are much more uh, willing to, you know, shoot first, uh, to uh, maim and kill people, um, because they have been sort of empowered um, empowered to do so. I think the only cop who has been indicted for um, a murder or manslaughter charge in recent memory was the officer who uh, shot Oscar Grant yeah. um, in, in Oakland, California. And that, you know, that, that is a, a pretty clear signal. And I think there were federal statistics released that, um, in the, the last uh, 10 years, I think, the police have killed four, over 400 uh, black men. Um, and so of those, one indictment is a license to continue to kill. Um, so that, that, that's one direct connection. But I do think that, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, sort of takes from what it does at home and exports it uh, abroad. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, the, the, you know, and it's not the other way around. So black communities, um, have consistently over the course of the 20th century, 
when Black people became an urban population, um, have had to deal with police occupation, harassment, murder, and in effect, police terrorism um, for that entire duration. Uh, and that becomes a kind of uh, model uh, or gives you some glimpse into how the police uh, or how the military behaves abroad, uh, abroad. Because if you can't even guarantee um, the, the, the safety and commitment to the civil liberties of your own population, then I'm not sure why anyone would believe that you can guarantee or even care about uh, those sorts of things when you are outside um, of this country and, you know, operating under a kind of military ethos where, uh, you know, you can pretty much do and operate in any way uh, that you, um, any way that you want to. And so there's that. And I think that there was another interesting overlap that sort of trickled out and, you know, hasn't been really discussed in the mainstream media because these things are just accepted as the, the you know, sort of way things happen. But um, the fact that in, you know, the, I think it was the, the chief of police of the Ferguson Police Department um, had gone to Israel uh, and, you know, had been a part of some sort of counterterrorism um, uh, uh, training. Um, and that, you know, it, it comes to light that several police chiefs across the U.S. have gone to Israel uh, to get uh, various kinds of uh, police training, anti-terrorism uh, uh, training, um, and the such. And so when you see how Israel has um, operated uh, in Gaza, uh, when you see the sort of um, collusive relationship between the American government uh, and the, the funding of the, the, the Israeli war machine, um, and, and when you sort of put that together with um, Israel and local police departments and thus the U.S. government having some sort of training relationship, uh, it's very, you know, it's a very frightening prospect. And I think it points to and shows the extent to which policing in the United States has become completely unhinged. And so, you know, there's, there's a way in which policing is always sort of um, operates like that in communities of color. But I think that what we've seen since Occupy, NATO protests in the U.S., um, that what gets sort of operated on a daily basis in black communities can very quickly be generalized um, to any sort of protest. Uh, um, uh, and, and that that is something, you know, that's something to be, concerned about in our movements and everyday organizing. And just to, just to be clear, um, so the, the, the former police chief of the St. Louis County Police Department uh, okay. and, and the St. Louis uh, City Police Department, both former police chiefs of those two, had gone okay. to Israel. And it was the St. Louis, I mean, Ferguson Police Department's terrible, obviously, but the St. Louis County Police Department has been the one that's been mostly in charge of the military crackdown right. in the aftermath. So yeah, that is something that hasn't definitely hasn't been looked into enough. But I think that's really, really important that you note that, um, you know, this is that this sort of back and forth where in fact, it's like what's happened to black communities in this country seems to have been exported abroad. Um, 
And that's really terrifying to think about because then people start, you know, when people start calling like Chicago, what do they call Chirac, it? They call it Chirac. Chirac. Yeah. And they're, and I, I mean, I think that's interesting. It's almost like, well, actually, is it like the fact that what takes place in Chicago was exported to Iraq? It's really, I mean, either way, it's really, it's very uh, disturbing to, to consider those, uh, those similarities and how they play off of each other. Well, I, I think just, just one more thing on that. Um, because I do think that, it's important to also look at how that gets spun out um, in in other parts of the U.S. as well. So, which is to say that you know the the, the United States has justified racial profiling. Um, you know, police departments have justified racial profiling uh, in black communities because they are quote unquote high crime um, communities. And when people accept that as a rationalization. Um, and that becomes part of the, um, the the daily operations of the police force, then we can't be surprised then when other things happen that um, in the United States that racial profiling then becomes uh, sort of, not racial profiling, but profiling in general um, becomes a kind of uh, accepted method of operation. And I think that some of the, the police tactics um, that have police tactics and tactics of the state in general in terms of targeting activist groups, uh, of targeting, you know, all sorts of people who uh, engage in legal, constitutionally protected uh, protest activities, um, that allowing them to open the door on that, that question um, has put everyone's rights um, in, in, in peril. And so, you know, when the U.S. used the pretext of 9-11 to militarize the police, um, you know, it's all done under the the auspices of, you know, well, this is just in case something, uh, some act of terrorism happens here. Um, But, you know, we saw the the quickness with which uh, the the, um, police were able to attack the Occupy movement, um, and now uh, attack, you know, peaceful demonstrators uh, in Ferguson. Um, and this all begins with the pretext of we're going to give our local police forces this military hardware um, because there's been a terrorist attack here. Uh, and so I just think that that is important to remember, that the uh, the pretext of attacks on one group of people are just that. It's an excuse uh, to expand um, the, 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 the rules uh, under which the, the police and other agents of the state can operate. And that ultimately is perilous for all of us. For everyone except for, like, the Bundy ranchers. Basically. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know. It's like, what do these people have to do, you know, in order to get any attention from... The state. Yeah, like I don't neo, know. neo-Nazis and white militias seem oh to be like the God. only group of people in this country that have constitutionally <laughs> protected rights, it seems. <laughs> exactly. So so one of the, the final, the, I guess the final question I would have for you going forward is if you could maybe add some context for us to understand uh, the struggle that the community is going to be going through when they talk about pursuing justice for Michael Brown's execution because uh, that is quite the the issue 
right now because many people think you know we want to invest our hopes in the federal government the this local city isn't going to have our best interests and then you've got people who who recognize that, that that's well where the process has to play out and they have to be patient but i think you have this whole recognition maybe privately that there may not be any kind of justice so what do you do so i think that i think that there are a couple of things um one is that there are there's sort of immediate demands that can be made, and then there's long-term organizing, um, long-term demands uh, that have to be thought about. I think immediately um, people are focused on the arrest of this killer cop, Darren Wilson. Um, I think that uh, the demand that the federal government take over the investigation is a legitimate one because the Ferguson police department has shown itself to be uh, completely awash in racism and can't really be taken seriously uh, to um, investigate this case. I think the demand to uh, remove the local prosecutor uh, who is deeply embedded with the St. Louis department police department. um, And one has to believe has been complicit uh, in the sort of racist practices of the uh, Ferguson Police Department um, and, and is really in no position to uh, adjudicate this case. Um, and so I think that those are all fine demands that uh, probably warrant or, or merit like a, a large uh, sort of um, consensus. Uh, and, but then there's the larger question that goes beyond the, the boundaries of Ferguson and, and really uh, speaks to um, larger issues uh, in black communities across the country, which is how do we get, you know, real justice for black people in the United States? And justice isn't just a, a question for uh, the judicial system, but justice has to do with addressing the disproportionate uh, ways in which the collapse of the public sector impact black lives, uh, the you know overrepresentation of black people among the ranks of the poor, uh, the unemployed, and, and so forth. How do we begin to build the type of racial justice movement that can address those issues? Um, and that is is where uh, we have to begin to expand the discussion beyond where the black political elite and the black political class want to leave things. Um, And so one of the things I talk about in my article is how Elijah Cummings, a representative from Maryland, uh, who's one of the leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus, says that, you know, the next step for this movement is uh, getting out the vote for the 2014 midterm uh, uh, election. And, you know, every four years, we're all told that it's the most important election um, of our lives. But really, the, the, the crises that are affecting black communities across this country are not really on the ballot. So police brutality, unemployment, poverty, uh, the attack on public education, so on and so forth, are not things uh, that you can simply vote up or down for. And it raises the question of what must we do uh, to build the type of movement that will raise those issues. And I think that we have a black liberal establishment that is so complicit uh, in with the, the political agenda of the Democratic Party 
that is so complicit with the status quo in this country that all they ever have to say to ordinary black people is register to vote and to vote, um, that there needs to be space for the creation uh, of new organizations uh, to uh, to develop and with them different strategies for addressing these these problems. And so one of the the, the beautiful things to witness over really the last year is the flowering of an organization, for example, like the Black Youth Project um, in Chicago, uh, which is taking young Black people across the city and, and literally through the tactic of direct action, uh, through public meetings and that sort of thing, um, bringing attention and bodies uh, to uh, uh, demonstrations to, uh, you know, not only sort of make demands about issues of police brutality and the attacks on public education, uh, but to also begin to net together, knit together uh, a network of activists across the city and across the country um, who are having these discussions about how uh, uh, to move things forward. And so I think that things like that and the, the, the space to develop uh, uh, social movements that are fighting uh, for, um, you know, public schools, public education, the public sector in general, for better jobs, for uh, the, you know, the uh, a $15 minimum wage, those sorts of things um, have to be at the forefront of our organizing efforts. And we have to expand the discussion beyond uh, what candidate to vote for, what election to participate in, and understand that the only significant changes that have come about in black life in the United States ever have come through struggle and social movements. Um, and I think that we have to get back to that. And within that, uh, I think there is space to raise broader questions about whether or not ultimately, because there are reforms that we can fight for in the here and now that can make people's lives better in the here and now. Um, but we really have to begin to ask whether or not this free market system is really capable uh, of delivering true justice and liberation uh, for, for black people in America. I mean, I, I think after 300 years, uh, one might conclude not, um, but that is a discussion and a debate worth having and a debate that gets uh, uh, confined and subsumed when every election cycle we're told that it's the most crucial and important election um, of our lives, you know, deciding between this or that millionaire and billionaire. And so we have to, um, you know, raise other questions beyond that. Well, on that note, um, thank you so much for speaking with us um, and breaking all that down. It's such an important conversation. And I, I hope it continues to be had. Um, I know that Ferguson's starting to kind of die down in terms of the media attention it's getting. Um which means that it's like, you know, this is one of those things that organizers and activists will continue to to be dealing with even as the cameras go away. So thank you so much again. And uh, and hopefully we can have you back on soon. Okay, thank you, guys. Welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Dis- Disclosure Podcast, and uh, we're going to continue on this uh, issue of 
police brutality and uh, all the stuff that's come to the fore because of Ferguson. Uh, Rania, hello. You're still with us. Yeah, yeah. I decided to stick around. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess it's just, it, it's been magnified, right? Like you just kind of, it, you, it's uh, all these stories seem to be getting a, a lot of extra attention in a, for, for positive reasons. I mean, they need extra attention. Yeah, I cannot, I mean, we both covered a lot of police brutality issues in the, in the past. And I can't think of a time when it has been like this mainstream, which is like the good that came out of Ferguson. Um, aside from all the organizing and action is the fact that like, this is in the news and being talked about very openly. I mean, obviously there's things missing, but still, um, and now it's like every, you know, these, there's been so many police shootings. Like I think we were talking earlier about how there's been something every single day. Uh, somebody has like been shot and killed by cops at somewhere in the country. And it's getting like, it, it, it's getting an intense, more intense level of media attention because of Ferguson. So it's not like this wasn't happening before, but now it's like outright, people are more outraged by it. And it, people are hearing about it more. And so that's, like, really good. And so I guess it's just a matter of what ends up happening as a result of all this attention. So there are larger points to make, but I, I guess I kind of wanted to do a roll call of, of some of the uh, stories that have caught my attention in the last week uh, related. And I, I think just because we're talking, when, when you and I have been talking about this, one of the things I've become really aware of is that there's a lot to our culture that makes just in general, I'll be very general without breaking down demographics in general, all Americans are very used to police violence. Um, have, 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 uh, in, in many ways, it seems like culturally we're all very used to police violence. And in fact, uh, a large section of the population encourages it. So I think while it may not be the most disturbing of all of the different uh, things that, that we'll talk about here, and while it might not uh, uh, you know, be as heart-wrenching because the people involved are not going to be mobilizing and involved in some kind of action for justice necessarily, I think what really like speaks to the problem of police brutality in this country is the fact that you ha- we had a sound supervisor for a cop show get killed along with the suspect by the Omaha police. Yeah. Um, and this happened on uh, Wednesday. And I mean, I can't think of anything better to show the problem here. I mean, we have a media show, a reality television show that has been exceedingly popular in this country that constantly shows the force that police Use and, and people cheer on that force used against individuals. And then in this situation, it tragically backfired and killed this sound supervisor who, who definitely did not deserve to die. And, and I don't know that the person, I don't actually think that the person who, he had a BB gun um, in a Wendy's, I don't think that that person necessarily deserved to die from that use of force either. But it just seems to um, really pull into focus the problem we have culturally with uh, police. Um, no, I totally agree. We, it's a it's a cultural systemic problem, uh, and there's no one easy solution to it. Um, 
but it's very disturbing and it's becoming, I feel, I feel like it's escalating. Uh, I don't know if it's because of the attention it's getting or because it's actually escalating, but it feels like it's escalating and it's become like a war on the people. Um, obviously not all people, <laughs> you know, but, uh, a war on, it's like a, a war that's, you know, been, been, uh, waged against black communities and, you know, Latino communities for, for, you know, ever, but it's, it's becoming much more, I think what the, you know, the word Kianga used earlier was generalized. So I think, uh, the, the, so some of the other stories to talk about is, uh, uh, this was, uh, something that I think Kianga talked to us after the, sh- after the show, um, and, and it definitely should be mentioned is this, uh, March, um, with, the casket to the Phoenix city hall. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that, that's rather incredible and, uh, powerful supporters. Uh, so it was Michelle, uh, Sisso, and she was a, uh, well, the story describes her as a mentally ill woman. Um, but I guess what's more important is the police shot and killed this person and the way the community decided to respond to it was to go and confront city hall and lay the casket there and uh, really force them to answer for what had been done. Um, we're seeing so many of these sort of powerful responses from communities. And so I guess the the, the, the next thing that I will say is uh, we should talk about here in Chicago, uh, the police on Sunday night, uh, they actually killed two individuals Sunday night. Uh, one was in, I think, a, a less sympathetic situation, uh, but nonetheless still worth asking questions about. I don't actually know the name of the victim. I don't. Um, but but what has gotten the most attention is this 19-year-old Rashad McIntosh, who it's it's unclear what happened before, but the police version of events goes something like. Uh, the police were told that there were quote unquote armed men in the area around 7 10 p.m. Uh, then some police showed up. And I can already imagine this being something that uh, was really hard uh, because you're just randomly probably selecting people out as suspects because uh, you don't know who's in the area. You just got a unconfirmed report. And so they tried to talk to Rashad. Uh, then something happened, and they ended up chasing Rashad all the way onto a porch. Uh, this is in the west side of Chicago. And then, according to police, um, what they claim is that Rashad pulled out a gun and pointed it at an officer. And then uh, that was when the officer shot and killed Rashad. Uh, I haven't seen a picture of a weapon. I don't know if they seized a gun. They claim to have uh, uh, actually picked up some kind of a weapon from the scene. Uh, Now, the residents and people who were there in the area say that what actually happened was that uh, when he got to the porch, Rashad put his hands up and was on his knees and surrendered. And that would mean that the police could have easily... Uh, arrested him for whatever, you know, running from the police officer, you know, they probably would have decided that that was something to to pick him up, arrest, and take him in. Whatever they were going to do, they, you know, they denied him 
the due process and uh, executed him on the porch, uh, is what it sounds like, if, according to the residents. And so what we wanted to do is I went down to a press conference in front of the federal building in downtown Chicago, where the Justice Department has its office, and I uh, wanted to play the clip that I recorded of Rashad's mother, Dawn McIntosh, uh, speaking to everyone who was gathered there. Uh, there was a whole little demonstration against police crimes, and I thought it was very powerful. So uh, we're going to play that right here. encourage you after listening to Dawn uh, to go back and watch that clip because one of the things that you might be able to tell is, is she's giving a message to the Chicago police officers that she's not going to stop fighting for justice and it's it's rather incredible to to see somebody thrust into that situation where their son has been killed uh, they've been robbed of someone they love and also in that moment, they have to become an activist because if, if they don't do something, that's the only way they're going to get any kind of justice. Exactly. A couple other things we wanted to highlight uh, is uh, I wanted to just mention uh, – that one of the stories that should be getting as much attention as the Michael Brown case uh, is the case in uh, nearby Dayton, Ohio, in uh, the Walmart with uh, his name's John Crawford. And on August 5th, uh, they just apparently have uh, the, the attorney for the man's family finally is, is, is able to talk about the surveillance video, it seems like, and has been talking to media about the surveillance video, which, which shows that um, he was basically uh, gunned down uh, while he was carrying an unpackaged um, a BB gun, um, and he was in the toy department of Walmart. And the reason, I mean, what really initiates it is there's actually a former Marine who called in a report 
uh, and suggested that, uh, I guess, Crawford was suspicious, and then the police um, approached him, and uh, uh, the John Crawford was on his cell phone, so it doesn't sound like there was too much of an altercation, um, but the Marine made this, I guess this has been quoted saying something like, he looked like he was going to go violently. John Crawford was... Uh, killed and was basically just standing in a, a store aisle, it would holding, seem. Holding a toy. Holding a toy. And uh, this is this is what got him uh, killed by police. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are multiple, as, as, we've, as we've said, there are multiple things that have happened uh, daily with, with shootings. Uh, there's also, as, as the week's coming to an end, an, an incident uh, that has been uh, shared uh, on uh, August 28th here uh, with a black man in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, this, this, the audio for this clip is more disturbing than the video, primarily because uh, he gets picked up by these officers and uh, then he no longer is able to capture the video, but he was, this, this man was sitting in uh, a public space in downtown St. Paul, waiting to pick his children up from new, new horizon Academy. And then you hear uh, someone confront him and then a police comes over to see what the problem is. And then he says, you know, he doesn't have to identify himself. That's true. There's no law in St. Paul that you, when you get stopped, that you're required to identify yourself. Um, and so he doesn't know why he has to volunteer personal identifying information to the officer. Uh, the officer then starts to escalate the situation uh, as they're walking. And uh, he says, you're only treating me like this because I'm a black man. That's really what it's all about. Because I'm just sitting in a public space and there was nobody by me. I'm not causing any problems. I was just sitting there. I'm waiting to pick up my children. And so he's walking. And then the scene escalates. And eventually, um, as, as the officers tell him he's going to be arrested, he, he starts to explain that he hasn't done anything wrong. Um, and uh, he wasn't causing any problems. And he doesn't have any weapons. The people with the weapons are the police. And eventually, um, in the in the video, a few uh, seconds later, he is being uh, basically assaulted by a taser. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they decide to tase him, um, and then he is placed under arrest. And this all happens in front of his kids. As he points out, he says he, his kids are, can be seen. Uh, he, he, he points them out to the officers. You can hear this in the video. And so uh, one of the things that's been... Um, I think really good for people who have been doing coverage of Ferguson, uh, I'll say from my own personal experience, that uh, a lot of the experience of, 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 of African-American people in this country um, has, has been communica communicated quite clearly through uh, the, the sort of testimony that has been uh, shared with me when I've been able to talk to people on the streets. It's been uh, very powerful. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a really, it's really great that you got a chance to go there as well. Uh, one of the things I wanted to just make sure people understood before we wrapped up our show was how everything was set up there, so that people could really understand just how easy it was to 
have the police come in and escalate the situation. So obviously we're doing this by audio and, and I can't put up a map and, and show everyone, but but I wanted people to just recognize that there is the apartment complex that is back off of the main avenue, which was West Florissant Avenue, where a lot of the main police acti activity had been happening, where where uh, the lines of the militarized police forces would 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 be um, amassing, and so where Michael Brown was executed is 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 away from the the area where people have been protesting, and then on that protest day, that that avenue they had the streets blocked off. So you basically had the creation of a public space, uh, which was, um, you know, in at the beginning was heavily militarized. Towards the end of the the span that I was there, I left on uh, Saturday. Uh, they it was just a heavily policed, heavily securitized space. No longer was the military equipment all that present. But um, what I wanted to just say was that uh, they put in these orders of, like, you have to keep moving around. You couldn't stop. You couldn't stand. They were treating the people of Ferguson uh, essentially like animals, as, uh, as, as uh, you actually heard that word used. Uh, people, there are people uh, who were there at the protests who, um, who have shared stories about how officers uh, you know, talked about, hey, we finally got this animal. Uh, which really like brings home the, the kind of racism behind some of the policing that was going on down down there. And I just wanted people to understand that uh, the police were basically off to the sides, um, on, all, on all sides, surrounding all of these people. And then what, what you'd have is the media kind of off to the side, and then you would also have the media mixed in with the protesters and sometimes even um, yelled at and told to keep moving as well, not uh, not able to stand in one position and take photos or video, actually um, being told that they had to keep moving. Uh, and so it's kind of, um, in, in some ways, like it, the way that things were playing out, I kind of felt like it was this sick sort of science experiment, social science experiment that was happening in the space of Ferguson, this really sort of creepy authoritarian experiment. And uh, people towards the end of the night, when you got the reports from the the officers in charge, um, actually Highway Patrolman Captain Ron Johnson, who, who would talk about it, it just was really strange because uh, it was like, you know, they, they really believed that something horrible was going to happen. And towards the end there, it really brought home like how fear driven, if, if, if not fear driven, racist their view was towards the police, uh, the policing of the community because they just would look at people and they would say, there are criminal elements out there sitting amongst peaceful protesters and we have to keep our eye on this whole entire space because at any moment it could become. Uh, this, this, I guess, this scene of like a riot, and uh, so you really did have 
these checkpoints set up in the community. Uh, I think this is one of the most underreported aspects of what was going on in Ferguson. You had these checkpoints in the community. I, 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 I was I saw these, and they were um, in the neighborhoods. They weren't just in the space. Uh, around where people were protesting. They they had officers parked in intersections. They were checking IDs of people who were going to the homes where they live. Uh, this really uh, deterred people from wanting to come out of their homes. And there was also a talk about how uh, people were having trouble getting food. Uh, not all the stores were stocking up as they normally would because of what was happening with the way the police were controlling the area. And uh, it was uh, a police occupation. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it definitely was a police occupation. And um, it was horrifying to watch from a distance on television. So I can't imagine, you know, having seen it up close. <laughs> but but nonetheless, I think that the people there were, were grateful. I, I left, um, I left uh, earlier than others because... What brought us all out there, and, and this is something that I we just have to admit is is true, uh, and I can't argue. All of the residents will tell you this. It wasn't until the riots that people started to really care what was going on uh, in Ferguson. The media didn't come before. The, the media came after the, the quick trip burned down. Uh, the media came after uh, the police started to... Uh, fire the tear gas um, and and escalate uh, their violence, and then, and then after they started to respond to uh, the the really, it wasn't all that widespread. The the looting, um, I can tell you, was was really blown out of proportions by media reports. Um, it's not to say that there wasn't property damage, but it wasn't uh, to the extent that you would have thought as somebody who was just you know watching from you know Chicago or Washington D.C. And uh, and so towards the end there, when there's no uh, real high intense police violence anymore, still police activity to be concerned about, but there aren't mass arrests going on. And uh, we just had people in the media just sit, sitting there, uh, you know, not 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 going into the community, talking to people, um, just sitting there waiting for the police to do to I don't know I don't know what to to harass somebody to fire mace off into somebody's face to um to do something brutal or or waiting for some troublemaking um teenager to to go off and uh cause a problem i don't i don't know because people were in the media just seemed to be really wanting something to happen uh that would be sensational that they could broadcast and i just didn't feel like hanging around anymore because that seemed to be exploitative to the community Oh, that makes sense. And I think that, you know, you're not the only person who's made that. I've heard that same um, criticism leveled by other people as well. So but it's just unfortunate. And I guess the, the parting thought as we wrap up our show is just to say that uh, I had a chance to connect with some organizers who were there on the ground. Uh, I had a chance to talk to some uh, this one uh, younger man uh, named Carrie to to really hear what it was like to live there, and 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 the the, the sort of harassment you go just driving down the streets uh, of St. Louis um, and and what goes on, uh, what it's really like to be a black man in that part of the United States, and uh, I, I don't think that there were a whole lot of reporters that left uh, the zone. I mean, MSNBC 
they uh, they leased out space behind a fence and they bought a, like a basically a vacant lot um, and set up their stuff behind a fence and were secluded from the community throughout the time that they were there in Ferguson and uh, where had their studio pushed off into a warehouse. I mean, it's not much. It, it, I mean, the, the least at least what you can say about CNN is they weren't hiding from the people. They were out there um, in the zone and, and weren't pushed off to the side. Um, I, I feel like um, one of the things we should leave you with is just so you can kind of get a sense of where this movement might go. Um, we're going to be putting this out on Sunday. There will have been this huge march in St. Louis um, in Ferguson. So I guess one of the things I'll leave you all with is the list of demands that in fact has been put out by organizers, um, uh, people who I got to hear from while I was there in Ferguson. Um, and there's, uh, there's the organization for black struggle. There's, um, the Missourians organizing for reform and empowerment. Uh, there's a couple other groups that are working and there are people on the ground who have been privately working on this, not really advertising to media, but making inroads in the community to organize um, and, and plan out actions that need to be taken. And so um, the local demands are just to have the Justice Department investigation, which we mentioned. Um, they want a Justice Department investigation into civil rights violations. They want the arrest of Darren Wilson. They want the county prosecutor, Bob McCulloch, to stand down and let a special prosecutor handle all of this. They want it a... Uh, they want the Ferguson police chief, Thomas Jackson, to step down. They want accountability for police practices and policies, um, and including a civilian review uh, of, re of, regarding, uh, of shootings and allegations of misconduct. They, they want the militarized policing uh, to end um, and the, the sort of huge occupation that has been in Ferguson to come to an end, and they've wanted the uh, immediate release of people who were participating in protests and ex exercising their right to assembly. I think at, at this point, there's maybe like 10 to 20 people who were arrested who are still um, in prison. The national demands have just been that, that people believe uh, President Obama should um, be coming to the area to meet with people, um, that Eric Holder should be using the resources and power at the Justice Department for investigating police brutality and harassment in black and brown communities, that there should be a transparency, accountability, and safety uh, of the communities by requiring that the police departments um, have front-facing cameras um, for recording stops, arrests, killings, and uh, any instances of excessive force, and that also there would be immediate suspension without pay of law enforcement officers that have used or approved excessive use of force. So that's just to give you an idea of where people are going to be organizing around. Anything else, Rania, before we go? Nope. I think uh, you covered it all. And I'm, I really appreciate, you know, your, your focus on um, all these police issues right now. All right. Well, we uh, have no break. We'll be back next week. We'll be uh, covering more. So everyone, uh, I don't know, go out and raise hell. Yeah. <laughs>